Hello, this is David Sangster, lead pastor at New Life Church. Thank you for joining us today for our podcast. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired. Enjoy the message. Today we're going to continue our breakthrough series. Last week we talked about, um, is this a little hot? Is it ringing through? I don't, is it okay? Okay. Um, last week we talked about the concept around Peter's restoration, all right? His, his, his being restored to his uh, place in ministry by Jesus, that his denial didn't disqualify, but the grace of Jesus reconciled him to uh, Reconnected into his mission, okay? Today I want to talk about the, the word reconciliation. The big idea of this message is Jesus bypasses all social expectations and prejudices to reach a woman who is hopeless and stuck in her lifestyle. I love the fact that he breaks through social norms to reach a woman, a person, one, and then that one reaches another one. We'll get to that, okay? Recently, we had a, a Zoom call with the district uh, with Ed Stetzer, and he put to words very eloquently some things I've been feeling about some of the racial tensions in our country right now. And, um, and it finally made, I finally could get some context as to how I was feeling. I thought it such a shame that the, the death of George Floyd has been so politicized over the last few months. We had a moment there in time. We had a moment where every normal American person could have easily said a phrase like Black Lives Matter because that's a normal statement. Okay, some kind of, some, you know, left-wing group picks up that name, puts out a website, and now it's politically divisive. And I'm not here supporting any organizations, but what I am saying is this. Um, I can honestly stand up here and say today, black lives matter. And some people would be like, well, don't all lives matter? Is water wet? That's not the point. If I was up here wearing a t-shirt and said, unborn lives matter, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. Because it's, it's, it's shining a spotlight on a subset of the population that is going through some real struggles. And if we're to be a more perfect union, we have to be willing to grow. Right? Now, here's the thing. Let's be clear on this. No political party is going to fix this. Okay? No political party is going to fix this. If we're waiting for them to fix it, you know, a, a piece of legislation is going to fix this. No. It's going to improve over time. When people deal with themselves in a moral state, 
and say, what's going on here with me? And then as they change, and other people change, with, and I think that's where the church lives. We change ourselves by the, by the power of Jesus revealing to us our, our, our issues, the Holy Spirit convicting us of our issues. We change, and then society changes. What we need to do is we need to take, play the long game. Instead of making it seem like, you know, we can flip over a couple cop cars and it's going to be all set. That's not how it works. We, we are not, even our founders in this country didn't say we're a perfect union. They said in order to create a more perfect union, which means what? Work. Every generation works on it. Okay? So I just want to say today that we have to be very careful that we don't become so politically annoying that we can't fellowship with people. All right? We have a big election coming up. And you are going to be able to, Lord help it be that way, to say your piece in a ballot, you know, on a ballot. You know why? Because we live in a free country. We live in the greatest country in the world. We live under the greatest system of governing that has ever been devised by man. You understand me? The only one that's greater is the one God's going to build. Because it won't have the human flaws that we have in, right? But here's the thing. You're going to have a chance. But don't be so politically or socially annoying that you, can, you break fellowship with people and then you can't, you can't learn. You can't learn. We can't create a more perfect union if the union is splintered. So I don't know who you're going to vote for. We'll find out on the poll on the way out. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. That would be very inappropriate. No, uh, I don't know who you're going to vote for, but guess what? It, I, I love you. Jesus, if we could act like Jesus, who broke down all these barriers to reach a person. You are a person. I am a person worthy of love, care, compassion, fellowship. And together we can build something. We're never going to agree on everything. I know. A lot of people disagree with me. <laughs> but I love you. And if you can show the same respect to us, you'll be more and more like Jesus. <sighs> I just rambled through like five pages of notes in like 30 seconds. Okay, here we go. It doesn't matter who a person is, where they live, what they've done, the color of their skin, or what their religious background is. Jesus wants us to draw close to the marginalized in society and share the message of hope found in Christ. I believe, I'm a strong believer in this. That when somebody comes to Christ, he doesn't just affect their eternal soul. He affects their terrestrial life. So the best message 
for somebody is Jesus. But you can't expect somebody to receive Jesus and take you seriously when their bellies are, are hungry. You've got, you got to meet them in both places. You can't go to a, a person who's stuck in the sex trade and say, Jesus loves you, but, but it's okay. You're going to be okay because Jesus loves you. No, we need to be on the lines for this stuff, but I believe holistically that the message of Jesus not only affects our eternal destination, but it affects our terrestrial experience. And it starts, it's systemic. It starts moving into everything that we have. It's easy to love our enemies. Jesus said that. I mean, no, I'm sorry. No, he didn't say that. I was got you. It's not easy to love your enemies. He said, if you love those who love you, what thank have you? Because even sinners can do that. He said, but if you love those who hate you, good for you. They hated me first. Get ready for it. All right? Two groups of people that are in this story, in this very story, the Jews and the Samaritans were not only at odds with one another, but they despised one another because of the hostile history that went back almost 800 years. Now, just think about that for two seconds. We throw that out there, 800 years. That's like, we've only been a country for like 250 years, something like that? Dad, do the math quick. What is it, Dad? 240, something like that. Okay. This is 800 years. This is a long time. This is deep, this is deep rooted. And Jesus addresses this 800 years, the 800 year prejudice in this one conversation. That's deep rooted. So throw that map up there, guys. I want to show everybody where, where we're looking at here. Okay, so this is Samaria. All right, it's, it's north of Ju- uh, Judea, and it's south of Galilee. Uh, we have Shechem, which is Sychar. It's got different names of changes. This is where Jesus was with this woman, okay, at, uh, at uh, Sychar. And it's right at the base of Mount Gerizim. And we'll get into the, why that's significant here. Okay, people from this region would travel miles around to get to Galilee. They wouldn't even go into the, they wouldn't even go into the region. So here's why. Leave that map up there for the whole conversation. Ready? Here's why. During the time of the Syrian and Babylonian uh, captivity, Israel was conquered by Assyria around B.C. 722, while the Babylonians conquered Judea around B.C. 586, Judah. Many Jews were displaced. I would say most Jews were displaced, okay? While many ex- uh, exiled to Assyria or Babylon, some remained and intermarried with the local population, all right? After several hundred years, we're talking several hundred, this is, this is a big thing, right? A hundred years, the captives were, uh, were over, the captivity was over, and the Jews began to make their way back to their homeland. Do you realize that the Jews, this is like a cyclical thing for them? And every time that they come back to their homeland, there's been people living there that have called it their land for hundreds of years. You think that's going to cause a problem? A little bit. It's causing problems now, it caused problems then. <laughs> Some king goes, yeah, you guys can go home now. 
our home. Nope, not anymore. <laughs> I mean, you could see the tension. You could see the tension even now. I mean, the Palestinians are saying the same thing. What? This has been the Jew- Jewish nations for, for, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. You could see the tension. Sometimes we, sometimes we only see the one side, that there is a tension there, and it's natural, and it makes sense. But there could be healing. All right, so after 700 years, people came back. Uh, when they returned, the group that resulted from the intermarriages with, their national, uh, with the nationalists were considered impure because they were half Jewish, half Samaritan. So the people coming back said, yeah, we don't really like you because you're a half-breed. We don't like you because this is our land. Hence the, the tension. The Jews banned them from their new temple and the worship of the temple. So they built their own temple at the base of Mount Gerizim. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us in his Antiquities of the Jews, in addition to racial tension, both groups agitated one another by contributing to many terror attacks. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. I'm just telling you. There ain't nothing new under the sun. I mean, think about that. This, of course, resulted in Jews intentionally avoiding travel through Samaria. They didn't want to get caught in a terror attack. To get to the, uh, if they were coming from the south to go to Jerusalem, they would go around and they would avoid each other at all costs. The tension between these two groups was palpable and devastating. All right, let's contextualize. We've got some of this stuff going on in our own country right now. Brothers, fellow Americans, people who should be working towards a more perfect union together are now at odds with one another, and cities are burning because we can't get along. Into this bleak picture, we now see the entrance of the Son of God. It's amazing. All right, open your Bibles. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we're going to start with verse 3. John 4. So, oh, could you put the map up there real quick, just again, as we start this, and then you can go back to this. Um, so here we go, verse 3. He left Judah, down here at the south, right, and departed again for Galilee. I just want to give you some geographical context. He's coming from here, he's going to there. All right? So now with all that we've talked about, where should he be going? Okay, you can put the other one back up. Thanks. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus... uh, Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Very brave gentleman. The Samaritan woman said to him, 
who is it that you, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Okay? So we wouldn't think that was too weird, except for the fact that we live in the day of get your own drink. You know, that's a different, it's a different whole thing. You got two hands, get your own drink. You know, uh, the idea is that, you know, we have different uh, cultural things, right? <laughs> but at that point, women didn't, women didn't expect a rabbi to even speak to them, for one point. And secondly, he's a Jewish rabbi who would never talk to a Samaritan woman. Okay? Um, so, verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you, know the, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where did you get this living water? And, you, uh, and are you greater than the, our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Just think about the history about that. These people are used to living in a place and drinking from a well that's thousands of years old and has so much history attached to it. I was driving through Windsor the other day. We saw, what was the house that we saw? It was the old house, like 17. It was like, I don't remember exactly the date was. We're like, that was before George Washington. It was like 200 years old. Big woo. You go to Rome. We went to Rome a few years back. There's things that have been there for like thousands. I've been walking on paving stones. They've been there since, you know, since Julius Caesar walked. You know, it, it, they're living in a culture that's way different. than I just think it's fascinating, honestly. All right. A little sidebar there. Um, verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give, him will I never, uh, never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here and draw water. It sounds nice, especially for this woman. There's a reason why this woman is here at the sixth hour. No one draws water at the hottest part of the day. You just don't do that. There's a reason why she's alone. Women would typically, in this culture, go in the morning as a group, safety in numbers, they would go as a group, they would all talk and gossip and do the things that women do, and uh, they would get the water and they'd bring it back to the house, because they needed that water to, uh, to accomplish the goals of keeping house in, in, in that day and age. You started the day by getting the water so that you'd have the water available for you for the rest of the day to do whatever you needed to do in your home. Well, she's going at the sixth hour, which means she, um, she is an outcast in the female community of that town. There's, there were mean girls back then, too. She was an outcast. And Jesus knows it. So verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Dun, dun, dun. The woman answered him, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right to say that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that now you live with is not your husband. 
what you have said is true. That's the reason why she's by herself in the middle of the day. She is, I wouldn't say she's necessarily a prostitute, but she's a very loose woman. Okay, she's just not, she's not the marrying kind. This last guy's like, yeah, I'm not marrying you. <laughs> I saw what happened to the last five husbands. No, thank you. Uh, I, what are they all, dead? I mean, is she like a black widow or what was we don't, there's no explanation as to what she, but the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. He's point, she's pointing to, in the direction of Mount Gerizim, where the temple that they built, because they were not allowed to go to the temple of Jerusalem for their worship, okay? But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, well, listen to this, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither, uh, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship, uh, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. I love that. He's like, I'm right here. You're looking right at me. You're looking right at me. The hour is coming, and the hour is now right here. Oh, I lost my spot. Okay, there we go. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. So she knows. I mean, this is, this is common knowledge in the time. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We could almost lump those into the I am statements. Hey, lady, I am that I am. I am he. This is the pattern that Jesus shows all through his ministry, all through his life. Think about his, his birth. The people who were notified of his birth. Shepherds, pagans. Who does he draw from? What pool of scholarly wisdom does he draw from for his disciples? Fishermen and tax collectors. This is the pattern of his, his whole ministry, is that I came for you. You are not a group. You are not a sociopolitical level. You are um, you're not rich, you're not poor. You are somebody that I He had, he, in, in the Gospels, he never gets that distinct with anybody else. In all the Gospels, I couldn't find it, where he just basically says, yeah, I'm the Messiah. In fact, most of the time, he's like, people start realizing it, and they're like, you know, oh, you're the Messiah. He's like, shh. 
don't tell anybody. My time has not yet come. So what do they do? They go tell everybody. But he, he never, I, I couldn't find it. If you can find it, please show me. Fact check me. But I can't find it where he actually comes out until he gets to before, pod, uh, before um, the high priest. And he says, are you Messiah? He goes, you said it, man. I am. That's the only other time, the very end. But to this Samaritan woman who, is, had a, who has a past, he opens up to everything. He breaks down these systems that keep people apart. And he meets people where they're at. Pretty remarkable. I love Jesus. He's so, he, he just keeps shaking up the, the stereotypes. Jesus chooses to travel through a district of Samaria to Sakar. She was astonished by the fact that a Jewish man was even speaking to her. So were his disciples, by the way. The disciples were like, uh, what's going on? We missed something here. What is going on? Um, we know a few things about this, uh, this woman in the passage. First, Samaritan, obviously. Second, she's living in sin. Third, she had a form of religion and even knew that the prophecy of the Messiah, she knew about it. Fourth, her life was changed by Christ. What did Jesus do? What did he change? What did Jesus change in her? She, had, she was changed by Jesus Christ. What did Jesus actually change? Did he change her nationality? No. He actually didn't. He just made her a citizen of his kingdom. She's got dual citizenship now. He didn't change her nationality. He didn't change who she was. He engaged who she was and accepted her, and then by his engagement was able to affect her morality and her eternal state. Think about that for a second. I've talked to so many people who just don't feel that they qualify to be a child of God. And it's funny because I, I'm talking, listen to this, folks, I'm talking to Christians, and they just don't feel worthy. I'm telling you right now, Jesus knows your garbage. He knows your struggles. He knows more than, you know, we should perceive that Jesus is a prophet because he knows. And yet, he wants you. So you have got to get out of your own way and accept his invitation as a citizen of his kingdom. And you've got to get about the work that he has for you and stop making excuses because your life and your past or whatever. Who are we to, to, to call unclean what Jesus has called clean? And if Jesus loves people like this Samaritan woman, who are we to not love the people around us? Regardless of whatever. 
I want my kids to make America a more perfect union. I want them to grow up and make their situation better, not just for them, but for everybody. We need to teach our children that they have a responsibility to make life better and to do it the way Jesus did it. Not just looking at their own selves, but looking on the needs of others, caring about other people, having compassion on people, loving people. That's what Jesus did. And he didn't allow stereotypes and, and um, ethnic differences to keep him from doing that. I think he did, he did this multiple times. He did it with uh, the centurion, the centurion that came to Jesus for healing of his servant. He didn't cast him away. He, did, he, he said, man, there's more faith in this guy than I've seen in all of Israel. He did it when he allowed that woman to anoint his feet. His biggest criticism, the biggest criticism of Jesus, aside from the fact that they said he was blaspheming, was that he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. When's the last time you got uh, criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners? Or the equivalent? You know what I'm saying? That's like a, that should be like a bad, if that's what Jesus did, that should be our goal. I want to live like Jesus. I want to I go where Jesus would have gone. I want to do what Jesus would have done. I want to love how Jesus would have loved. And I can't say, Julie, you go eat with that person. No. I need, I need to do that. We, we, what we want to do is we always want to do it. And, and, and this is what activism often is especially these uh, basement activists on Facebook and Twitter, keyboard activists, yeah, is we want to tell everybody else how they ought to do things, and we just don't do it. We're not actually bold enough to actually get up out of our seats and do it, but we like to tell everybody else what they ought to do. Jesus never did that. He never did that. He first acted, and then he taught as to why it's so important. I'm so off my notes, it's not even funny anymore. So, it's a really good sermon. You should hear it sometime. Uh, this one's good enough? We've got three minutes. Okay. Um, but what I want to just, what I want to, to emphasize today, and I really feel like God is, is, is moving me in a little bit different direction, and that's okay. God, you're allowed to do that. Um, but the idea is this. We can't let... We can't let our culture define what we as Christians can and cannot do. Where we as Christians can and cannot go, where we as Christians um, can uh, influence and what we can't influence. I think we as Christians, we have got to be obedient to a higher authority. And that higher authority tells us, I should say that higher authority is not connected to a political party. I keep saying that, and I want to say, 
I am part of a political party, so I'm not like, please understand. But I'm, what I am saying is this. My affiliation with the kingdom supersedes my political party affiliation. Okay? It, it's, you know, we got to be careful that we don't, you know, Christianity, especially in America, has, <laughs> has almost been, caught, been hijacked by a political party. I don't think God has a uh, membership card to either <laughs> political party in America. But here's the thing. If we are not willing to do the things that Jesus did in our culture in which we live, and we can't influence change for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of souls, and the sake of our terrestrial existence here on earth, for our kids, for our grandkids, all this stuff. If we're not willing to do that, then I think we're going to pay, I, I, think, I think we're going to get judged for that. He calls us to live a life that is not comfortable, that's not easy, that is not something that is going to be uh, appreciated by all. You guys know that some of my activistic tendencies trend toward um, the pro-life movement and the uh, reducing of, reducing, uh, I can't think of the word, I have a hard time, the extinguishing of slavery throughout our world. Those are, the, those, are the, my, those are my two big activistic things. When you start believing that, and you start putting reasons behind it that are really solid. People who haven't really thought that much about it are not going to like you. They're not going to say nice things. I, 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 I loathe to say her name, but Molly, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. We have to live like Jesus. You want to know what happens? You want to know the end of the story? Here we go. The end of the story is this. This woman is so impacted by Jesus. Her life has changed. Not her nationality, not her where she lives, not her life, her, her more, her life has changed. She goes back to the town, and this woman who is pretty much an outcast in proper society. For, you know, for some legitimate things that she's living in. Starts getting a whole bunch of people. And the first revival, geographical revival under the ministry of Jesus, happens in Samaria. People are getting saved. People are coming to the Messiah. And people's lives are being changed. Why? Because she went and told everybody what they should do. No. She went and told everybody what Jesus had done for her. And Jesus changed her, moved her, showed her things that she had been hiding from the world for years, opened up the book and said, I don't care about all that. I care about you. And when she, when she started explaining that, and they came to Jesus, their lives were changed. People got saved. People... people People came to Jesus 
accepted him as the Messiah. Fast forward a little bit. Jesus goes back to heaven after his, after his resurrection. He ascends back to heaven. Pentecost comes. The disciples start preaching. And guess what? They don't like the message either. People don't like the apostles' message. So they start getting persecuted. So this guy by the name of Philip goes up to Samaria. And the gospel hits that time. The Holy Spirit falls on Samaria like, like, like a bomb. And the, the people, the, 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 the apostles down in Jerusalem are like, what's going on? So they send up some representatives to make sure this was legit. And when, he, when, the, when they get up there, guess what? They're like, this is legit. And they pray over these people, and they receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that happened on the day of Pentecost. And the disciples are like, I guess the Samaritans are part of the crew now. We can't really, we can't really deny it. I mean, I guess they're part of the, they're speaking in tongues. We spoke in tongues. I, I guess we can't really dispute that. But here's the thing. I believe, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the reason that there was such a reception to the gospel in Samaria is because the ground had been tilled by this woman and, and Jesus' visit. This was not new stuff to them. They're like, oh, yeah, somebody about two years ago came through. Was that the same guy? Yeah, same guy. We're in. That was awesome two years ago. It's awesome now. We never know what our lives will do down the road. All we, need, all we can do is be obedient to the call of Jesus Christ and not let our society tell us where and when or to whom we can share the message of hope. So let's be on mission. Let's be an example to the world of what it looks like to break down barriers, to break through, put it up quickly. Patrick, put it up. Not that one. There it is. To break through. Let's show the world what it looks like. Let's be the light we hope to see. It starts with us. It starts with us. Could you stand with me so we can pray? And I guess that's the end of the sermon. I don't know. It ended so different on my notes, but that's okay. I love you guys. God bless you. Lord, thank you for this time we could be together as a family. A family of God. Lord, we all have different backgrounds, ethnicities. We, both, we all have different socioeconomic levels, but we are one in Christ. God, I pray today that we would do the thing that you said. You said they will know, they, meaning the world, will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. One of our greatest evangelistic tools in our tool belt is the love we have for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If we can function well as a body, love each other well, and not be divided, 
then we can be an example for the rest of the world. God, I pray right now that my brothers and sisters and, and myself would do less worrying about our country and more praying for it. God, I pray that we would, I pray that right today you would put a burden on our hearts to pray for our country. Not to worry, not to be full of fear, but full of hope in you. And God, I pray that you would allow us to break down any barriers in ourselves, Lord. Help us to look inside and break down any barriers, any prejudices, any, any uh, hatred we have towards anybody. Lord, that you would wash that away and you would fill it with your love. Help us to be able to understand the difference between agreeing with everybody and loving everybody. And God, I pray that we would be your ambassadors to a lost and dying world, bringing the hope of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. God bless. Have a good week. Let me know how that one sits with you because I didn't mean to go there. So, love y'all.